please pronounce your name correctly for me. It's Ard Alexander Almundason. And you hail from Iceland, correct? Yeah, from Reykjavik, Iceland, yes. But are you currently, I've seen you that you've traveled and gone back and forth to Sweden a lot, so are, where are you right now? Yeah, I'm in Reykjavik now. I've been living here since 2013. I was studying in Malmö in Sweden and lived there for a couple of years after my studies. All right. So give me a little overview, sort of your current status of what you're doing. So you're a practicing artist. Do you do anything else? So I have a studio in Reykjavik, and we also run an artist-run space there as well called Open. And for money, I do jobs like I teach, I install exhibitions in museums, I do guided tours, all of these, you know, these odd jobs that artists often do. I sell Christmas trees and during Christmas time. And Oddly, you are the second artist I've spoken to in Iceland that, that sells Christmas trees. Oh, yeah, there is a couple of artists that do that. <laughs> that is a fascinating commonality. <laughs> okay, so for, let's go to the artist-run space. Is this a self-funded, self-run thing? Like, so give me a little overview of the artist-run space that you got. Yeah, absolutely. So it's called Open. We named ourselves after this sign. What was the kind of cheapest sign to get? And, you know, these shops have these like kind of open signs that are open when they're open. We're usually closed, so that's kind of our motto. We're called open, but we're more or less closed. So we have this big open sign above our door. But we're four artists running that space, having studios there as well. It's me, Una Margaret Arndóttir, Arnar Ásgeirsson, and Hildegunnar Birgisdóttir. So it's our studio, and then maybe, well, it's difficult to say because of this COVID stuff, but it's maybe five to ten times a year we kind of empty the studio, put up exhibitions or performances, events. So like kind of short shows, maybe like for two, three weekends. And then we go back to working in our own stuff. And we are funded by ourselves. We just pay kind of rent for being there. It's a bit cheaper than like commercial spaces because it's run by the city. But And we get grants once in a while. We apply for project grants for exhibitions. So you could say we have to pay a little bit of rent and then we have to pay for exhibitions like, you know, you know how it is, the paint and the spackle and the screws and transport and getting people here and stuff like that. I do know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but kind of a positive thing about being like that, you know, to be kind of, I don't know, self-funded is the right term. We're not like obliged to do anything, you know. You're independent. Independent. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have a need to kind of fill the space, you know. You know, nothing is happening in June. We'll just make it our studio then in June, you know. So we only do projects that we're really excited about. And we also like curate ourselves and do these kind of odd projects as well. And when it comes to your work, I have to admit, I'm a little bit, um, my perspective on it, of course, being an American, you know, we were taught that you should come up with like a, a standard style that says like, this is me, this is my iconic thing that always, anytime you see it, you know, it was made by me. You don't adhere to that. No, no, actually. Yeah. I really, I tried to go the opposite way almost. I could say like when I was starting out, I was really into performance art and a lot of my stuff was connected to performative stuff. But at some point, I felt like I was becoming like this performance artist, like people were calling me that. And then I kind of just stopped doing performances because I didn't want to be that. So I went like, now I'll do paintings and stuff instead. So it's almost like 
aggressively the other way around kind of well then the question that i would have with that is like is that helpful or does it hurt the sort of your abilities because you mentioned grants so like if you're known as a performance artist then you submit a grant to as you said do paintings do people go like well but he's a performance artist like how what what's this painting stuff he wants to do so like does it help your career to be sort of changing techniques and styles or has it been somewhat hurtful or detrimental when i've been applying for grants like when i said we have this called artist salary stuff i don't know if you've heard about that i have but nobody's given me like hard details on it but yeah i've heard about it yeah i think it exists in a lot of countries no no i i no please stop Everybody in Iceland thinks that every place has this. No, this is so unique to you. <laughs> like Nobody else has this. Maybe some other Scandinavian countries I'll give you. Yeah. But nobody else in the world has that. Yeah, you're right. I know at least in, in Sweden, Norway and, and stuff like that, they have this. But So it means that you make a proposal of what your year will look like, what exhibitions you will do, what works you will work on, and kind of explain how you will work as an artist throughout the year. And you apply for three months, six months nine months, 12 months, up to, I think, 18 months is the maximum. And then it doesn't really matter. You don't really have to talk about what medium you work with in a way. You just kind of talk about what you're doing. And that applies also to both the school here, Art Academy, and where I was studying in Malmö. It's not the medium-based courses. You know, you don't do a painter's course or a sculptor's It's everyone together. I had the same master's program. I did a new genres, which is interdisciplinary whatever where any given class would be a, a performance art a video piece a painting a sculpture and we'd all just have to talk about art not photography or film or whatever kind of thing so yeah i'm i'm that's my background yeah i see but do you mean like career-wise with changing up and stuff yeah so in my mind it has been like radical changes like single person called me a performance artist. okay i'm gonna stop now let's do something else but I think if you probably look over, I think there has been, you know, when I was doing more performative stuff, there was always sculpture was really a, a big part of it. And I've never been really like, yeah, solely focused on certain mediums. It's just something that came naturally at the beginning, at least in performance. Well, and that's something that I find interesting that seems to be a shift that's happened, I'd say, I don't know, maybe in the past 20 or 30 years in the arts from making beautiful objects let's say or beautiful performances or whatever it is more to the conceptual being the important thing and the reason why i say this is in the united states where i was taught it was very much you make a pro like you come up with a technique or an aesthetic or whatever and then you sort of figure out what you're making later Whereas in Europe, and specifically what you're saying, it seems like you, you the reason and the concept of your work is the primary thing, and then the method of expression is almost secondary to that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, great. Yeah, that was easy. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, okay, so that's just true. That's solved. Good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now you've also something that i found fascinating about your works is you you do your independent work that is yours and yours alone but you also do some work in collaboration with una is that correct did i pronounce it correctly una yeah it's uh una but many people say una that's fine it's the same with my name it's uh Ar 
you know, if you used to know to your name is hard. Your <laughs> yeah. not is is reasonable. Your name is difficult yeah, okay. to be honest. But <laughs> um okay, but you but you work in collaboration and I find that just the inherent nature of, of making collaborative art a slightly difficult. You know, it, it gets edgy at times. And then B, it turns out that this person is actually your life partner as well. So how did you decide and why did you decide to have a life partner who's also an artistic partner? And how does that work? We've been together for, for so long. We've been together since before we decided to go into art. Actually, we've been together for like 16 years, I think, 16 or 17 years. So we were just, yeah, 19, 20, something like that when we started dating and then we kind of went into this into this world both of us so i think it's just probably something that happens if you have a partner that's an artist i don't know yeah i I hear this from a lot of people they say it's really difficult to work with other people but i do it quite a lot so both in this space and open i also have a a long-term collaboration with a swedish artist called the collaboration monument i can tell you a bit about that later but with una it's it has been our project often starts with like private jokes, to be honest. So I don't know if you've seen some of our, our works. I did. I watched some videos beforehand, yes. Yeah. Did you see that work High Point, for example, where we were like listening to jazz music and... Playing some music around the di- the kit, what looks like a breakfast room table, like a kitchen table. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, sort of a breakfast scenario. And then there's some jazz playing. We're, we're talking, yeah, here it is. Here it comes, you know. And this moment's always coming and... It started off just as a joke between us when some song is going on. One would be like, yeah, here's the moment. Here's the moment of the song. Here it is. And just like, how do you say, elongating that moment in a way. And then that kind of developed into, into a video work. So it's not necessarily that we sit together and we're like, yeah, okay, we have to make something now. Now we work together. It's like, it comes kind of naturally, you know. So at that moment, we were almost we just realized that this could be something that could might work in a video, you know. How does that relationship work in the home life then because <laughs> i mean to, it, there's a certain extent like because you're an artist and i'm assuming based on, on the conversation here she's also an independent artist makes her own work and sometimes you will collaborate mm-hmm. okay yeah so like whose name goes first like so when you publish something that, together is it your name first or her name first i think we are usually doing alphabetically so it's her her name because we use the first name uh, here we don't have last names in Iceland, as you maybe know i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> okay some people have if i think a majority at least of people that's like the traditional way of doing things it's like that you are it's a patriarchal system so you're named after your father so i'm almond son it means i'm son of almond my father's name is almond and she is Artna daughter she's like the daughter of Artni. i think they're changing now you know it's becoming more I don't know if I'm using the terms correctly, matriarchal. So it's like the mom's name is also being used as the last name. But this is kind of the traditional way of kind of naming your children here. Uh, they do the same thing here in the Czech Republic. My wife, they do Ova at the end of female last names. So like when she married me, she should have been Dolzova. Mm. Except that I found out prior to us getting married that the ova technically sort of translates, at least in English, to um, property of or owned by. Oh. Uh, so we decided not to do that. We thought that was not uh, progressive. Yeah. <laughs> property of doesn't sound so 
so great i think well it's for uh, young uh, for girls who are born they get the ova which again translates in english to property of or owned by <laughs> so mm. it's totally okay. inappropriate as far as i'm concerned but yeah that's a different thing altogether okay you mentioned this uh, a collaboration in sweden mm -hmm. expand on that a little bit yeah it's Something we've been doing for, I think, since we were together in school. We graduated 10 years ago from our master's studies. And we, it's called a collaboration monument. And that kind of started with us just wanting to do a collaboration together. So we just started to think about what kind of means to collaborate. Can you do like, is it possible to do like a 50-50 collaboration? Can you, or does one side always like yield to the other, you know? So we kind of wanted to think about what collaborating was just like fundamentally what it means to collaborate. So we decided we wanted to make, attempt to make a 50-50 collaboration. Like it has to be, it's not like 49.9 versus 50.1 or whatever. It's like exactly 50-50. So the way we thought about doing that was to get external person, like a surrogate, we call that person, to make a work for us where we give directions in one ear each. So the first attempt, for example, we got person we don't we don't know personally, so we have no like no history with them. And this guy, his name, the first one was Andreas. He's sitting in a room and he puts on headphones that are kind of. So this is 2011, so you can probably do things more simple now. But it was like <laughs> these headphones, like you were wearing with what, what are they called? Like I don't know, studio headphones. Studio headphones, yeah, that had been kind of taped together, so you would have like wires from each ear, you know, instead of just one. Mm -hmm. And he was be connected to two different like Skype calls. So we would be watching him in different spaces, in different cities even, I think it was, and giving him directions of what to draw. So he had a pencil and a piece of paper. And sometimes we talked at the same time. So he had to like, you know, listen to both of us and like start erasing. And then we're like, no, don't erase that. You know, he had to like kind of middle child or something, you know, in a, like a quarrel between parents or something like that, a, a mediator or, or, or something like that. So it also comes a bit from a movie called Cube from 1997. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Probably. It's a sci-fi movie, Canadian movie. It sounds familiar. We're doing a podcast, so we can do the long story, right? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so the movie The Cube, like, I sound kind of funny. I'm describing a sci-fi, 20-year-old sci-fi movie to you in this podcast. But anyway, it's about these people that wake up in different rooms, and it's like these, these cubes that they are, wake up in. They have, like, doors on each wall, and the rooms are always moving. And they're trying to figure out how they got there, what they're doing, how they can get out. It's kind of the main theme of the movie. And then, kind of spoiler alert, you find out that one of the guys was like, I don't know the name, the one, not an architect, but someone who like does technical... Architect will work for that. Engineer. Okay, engineer. Exactly, engineer. One of the guys remembers that he was an engineer on a project very similar, where he created like an outer shell for something like this. And his explanation for the cube is that it had maybe a purpose in the beginning, but then it was handed off to different engineers and slowly it changed and became something that no one knew what was. And since they had spent so much money on building it, whoever it was, they had it and they had to use it for something. So that's his explanation for people kind of being in there. And I remember at least for myself being, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, seeing that movie, it was like kind of blown away about that explanation for maybe life itself in a way, you know, that it's just, it's just there. So we have to use it, you know, <laughs> let's hope it's not that, but yeah. 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 But that's kind of a, a way for us to, 
to think about this project. So we have this, now I've got a bit sidetracked. So we have this step. So we have this guy, this surrogate who makes a drawing. And this drawing is then sent to a different professional. I'll just use an example from 2012 in the Netherlands. We did this project. We made a drawing. The drawing was sent to an architect, an American architect called Jessica Tankart. And she used the drawing to create like a three-dimensional object or sculpture. She got like information about what the budget was, where it was like an outdoor work. So like what kind of you say, topology or what kind of like area it was placed in. And she had to kind of design something based on the drawing. And then it was sent to someone else who had to kind of build it. So it ended up being like this 13 times 30 meter long outdoor sculpture. No one is responsible for in a way, you know, that's kind of the ideology of the idea. Do you understand what I mean? I do. The idea is that there's no creator. It's a monster that kind of happens through a process. And we've been repeating this a couple of times. We did this in, in Belfast in Northern Ireland and Trondheim in Norway. And now we're doing one in a small city called Gislavet in Sweden. And now we're trying to remove ourselves even more from the project. So instead of us giving directions to a surrogate, this person drawing, we got hired people to do that. So now we had performance, I think, a month or two ago. There was a woman who is a dog person who prefers dogs over cats. We found a person that is a dog person in Germany. And she had two stand-up comedians from Istanbul that were giving her directions on what to draw. Now these drawings are being sent to TikTok dancers all over the world. And they will do dances based on this drawing. And then that, there will be a continuation of that project. It's still like... It's still in the works. It's going to be an exhibition in the end of this year, 2021. Yeah, that's the idea behind it. I don't know if you understood any of this explanation. I understood all of it. No, no, I'm just sort of taking it all in, sort of trying to process it. But okay, so you have an exhibition coming up later this year, but you actually have two exhibitions that you're doing simultaneously or preparing for simultaneously. Yeah, I have like, I have four exhibitions this year, some that have been posted from last year. I usually do like maybe four or five exhibitions a year, I think, something like that. Okay, I've got to stop you on that because I can't get an exhibition to save my life. So what is it you're doing to get these exhibitions? Are you being asked? Are you proposing? Like, how are you getting all these exhibitions? I can't even get one in a year. And you're like, eh, yeah, I only do four. Well, fuck you. How are you getting these? <laughs> These four I've all been invited to from of this year. These are all projects that I was invited to do. I have this told you about in this small town, Gislavet in Sweden. I have a big show coming up in the Reykjavik Art Museum this summer. That's the one I'm working the most, kind of, because it's just opening in more than a month. Then late this year, I'll do an exhibition in Athens in October, and then a, a performance probably in Norway in a small town there. But these are all projects that I've been invited to do. And I think, yeah, two of them are probably connected to my studies in Sweden, like people that I've gotten to know there that I've just been in touch with. And then obviously the one here in Reykjavik is kind of, yeah, from the kind of scene here, just been invited to do. I was going to say, you're, you're just going to like blow off the one in the museum. Ah, that's just because I live here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Fuck you. <laughs> sort of kidding sort of not little envious yeah. little envious it's fine but okay so so you but you've been invited to do all these things 
but they're based they're you're invited because of something you did in your career so like you made some friends you said like in sweden and things like this so like my difficulty with that is a i'm really bad with keeping in touch with people i think that's my, probably my one of my biggest problems but secondly it's like how how much do you keep in touch with these people? Because like I've made some friends with, let's say like some curators and it's like, you don't want to nag them and be like, Hey, you got any exhibitions coming up? Cause I got some new works, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 But you want to sort of stay on their radar so that like, if, and when they do have an opportunity that they remember to ask you or invite you to do it. So like how much of a relationship do you sort of have with these people? Well, to be completely honest, not a lot, actually. I'm not <laughs> sorry to say that, but it's, I'm not on like Facebook and stuff like that. But I mean, when like this with my collaboration with all of this collaboration monument, that's something that's been going on for such a long time. So we're good friends. We've been working together for 10 years. So we're always, you know, talking together once in a while to go specifically like the one in Norway. It's a project by Mike Kenstern. She's a Norwegian artist studying at the same time as me. And she's been to Iceland a few times, so we've been hanging out here. I mean, I'm not like chatting with her a lot. When we meet, we just have a beer or coffee or something and hang out. All right. Well, I feel like the the Scandinavian art scene is pretty, I'm probably going to get in trouble for this, but like somewhat insular. Like I feel like a lot of Iceland, Norway, Finland, Baltics, Sweden, sort of stay up there a lot. Like I don't hear of a lot of people sort of coming well, everywhere else in the world, more or less. Like, is that something that you strive to do, or is just being? Uh, I don't want to say successful, but like you know, being able to continue to produce your work, uh, all that's important, or is it? Or do you hope to sort of get bigger on the world stage? Are you speaking of me specifically, or you think in general of the scene? I would be interested in both answers <laughs> yeah, yeah, as separate answers. Because, I, I mean, yeah, I think your personal opinion is probably different than the community opinion. Yeah. It's difficult for me to speak that much of the other Scandinavian countries because, I mean, I lived for, for two years in Sweden after my study, so I know a little bit about like Malmö and stuff like that. But in Reykjavik, at least, I know that quite well, I think. And since we're running this space, I know a little bit about how things work and to be honest, I think it's a very small scene here. So if you are a working artist, you are, you know, really actively working on your stuff here. It's really quick to go through almost all exhibition spaces here in a way, you know. I'm not complaining about the scene. It's a very small place. So outside of Reykjavik, it's only a few parts to exhibit at and go quickly through it. I think with inclusive, or did you say that, inclusive, inclusivity? Sure. I think it's somehow practical reasons as well, just like with coming to Iceland is so to invite someone to exhibit it's so expensive to invite someone from uh, far away so for us it's been you know we've been kind of having to if we invite someone it's usually someone we are familiar with to exhibit in open and then we're kind of just offering them to crash in the sofa it's a bit like that you know so it's a bit difficult to invite someone we have no idea how they are it's kind of almost offensive to invite them to come uh, exhibit in my space and sleep on my I don't want to invite anyone to do that in a way but the scene yeah i don't know yeah because i mean i wonder because don't get me wrong i think iceland's a fascinating place but i feel like a, it's reasonably insular like it, it doesn't you don't you know in america we didn't hear a lot about what was going on in iceland in europe i hear a little bit more about it but 
I feel like I'm not, and I'm not sure if it's intentional or sort of accidental, like that you all don't get too much publicity or too much world exposure intentionally, or it's just because you just happen to live on an island pretty far away from everybody else. Yeah. I mean, it is like three hour flight to the next city, you know, Copenhagen, London. That's like the next, that's three hours. So there's maybe a stronger idea of here and there versus like when I was living in Malmö, there was a half an hour train ride to Copenhagen. And then you could take, I think, the bus to Berlin even, just jump on the bus three hours, maybe, if I remember correctly. I mean, but that's sort of what I'm getting to is like, is that to your, do you feel, so this is specific to you, like, so do you feel that being isolated like that is to your benefit or, or to your detriment? Because I could see it being amazing in many ways. If I speak for myself, I think I'm so happy that I also did my studies abroad to have that connection to like at least the Nordic countries. Because I think it can be a bit difficult if you're only based here, only exhibiting here. It is, yeah, like I said, it's a bit further reach to go to the next place. Okay, I've got a random question that sort of just is in my mind these days. Is like, okay, so you're in a reasonably isolated location in the world and you have very good support from the government and and the city and all the other different places so like what are your your career goals like what is it you desire out of being an artist i think for me it's i would be really happy if i would just be able to do minimum side jobs you know to not be <laughs> doing all these things. Like, I mean, I remember I was magician's assistant for a short time. I was mopping floors of a solarium, doing all these kind of odd jobs. I'm doing a little bit better jobs now, but still, for me, I think it would be good just to be able to go to my studio, do exhibitions, and just have a long kind of career of working, a big career of work. Well, I, I, the reason why I ask is because I've asked this of different people in different parts of the world, and it's very interesting how everybody has like different goals. And I think there are sort of regional goals, and and I think it's very interesting. Like, again, I grew up in in America, so like my goal, of course, was to be Whitney Biennial and and exhibition in MoMA, and wanting to be in the Art History Canon, and all this kind of like big, huge, stellar kind of dreams that are completely unrealistic, A, <laughs> but B, with age and having traveled the world a little bit, I lived in the Middle East for a little while, I don't want any of that. If that came my way, I would absolutely take it, but it's not my goal. Like I like your idea of like, I just want to be able to continue to produce without having to worry about money or time. Yeah, I mean, I had also a bit kind of a curious experience when I was graduating from my bachelor studies in 2009. I did this work that was kind of mildly successful. You know, it was, I think, a period where, I don't know if you will kind of recognize this, where Nordic art was kind of popular just after the crash. Did you, did you feel that at that time? I did. I actually had some Nordic furniture at that time. Cause... Yeah, okay, okay. And I think... For short, for a little bit, I, I went into a little bit of a dip into a wave there. I made this piece. It was just after the crash here in Iceland called Krappa. It was a piece for symphony. And it was at the Armory Show. Yeah, it was exhibited there at, in New York. Yeah, exactly. The Armory Show. And 
in some Biennale as well. And, and uh, I got some people asking me, you know, it, it was, I felt like it, there was a possibility there to kind of take that kind of thing further, make like a different version of it that would be fit into different like exhibitions and stuff like that. But then I realized that I, to be honest, I didn't like that work so much. You know, it was something that was just like a school project in a way, you know. It was like something that I did as a bachelor, you know, graduation piece. Yeah, it was something that I soon after had kind of moved away from. It's a piece that, I mean, I care for it and stuff like that. It's just something that it became a little bit too big for me. So I kind of stepped away from that. Like you mentioned, like it was performed in the Armory Show by this fantastic orchestra there. But I've never even actually looked at that. I have like footage from the recording of that. I have never even looked at it. I have. It's on your website. And no, yeah, that's from the Gothenburg Biennale. It was like Gothenburg Symphony Orchestra. But there was a recording made by this, they're called Metropolitan Orchestra, this New York-based orchestra. And I never actually looked at the footage. I have it somewhere, but it's just like, I don't know. It was something that I wasn't too kind of keen on. Okay, don't take this personally, but this sounds like a little bit of almost like self-sabotage in a way. Like you, you literally said like, yes, I was gaining some success and people wanted me to do things, but I decided not to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're literally like going against everything that, well, that sort of the definition of success in many people's eyes in the arts world, like acceptance and then, you know, a request to continue to do more things. And you're like, okay, that's really nice. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you have to, at that point, think about also, I don't know, it's a bit bit silly to talk about. I think it's kind of predictable almost to talk against like, you know, success and market in a way. It's kind of easy to say that. But in the end, like, I mean, what is the goal in a way? Is, Is it just to become successful even for something that you kind of, you're not certain if it's like something you want to pursue? Do you know what I mean? I do. And also, and also it's your reputation because, you know, you're going to be known by the works that you put into the world. So like, do you want to put out things that you're proud of and that you want to be known for, or do you want to be put out things that somehow the market encouraged you to do? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Who's making the calls, you know, is it if someone says like, yeah, continue to do this, we'll show it. And then you just, is that what kind of pushes us forward? I think that's kind of, it would be kind of a sad way of moving forward. Do you know what I mean? I absolutely do. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, we all still have to pay bills. I guess yeah, I should rephrase that. People in the rest of the world have to pay bill. In Iceland, you all have your salaries that are pay given to you. So good for you. Sucks for us. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I explain a bit about the salaries, just to pull back a little bit on that, it's something you apply for and then, for me, I recently got like six months and then 12 months. But before that, for the first eight years of applying, I got like three months every second year. So, you know, I got nothing, then three months, nothing. Three months. So it's, it's not something to, it's going to keep you alive, but it's, yeah, it's a great thing. All right. As a little bit of a shift though, because I can see some drawings in the background here that nobody that's listening to this can see, you're also a parent. Yeah. I have a son called Uni, three years old, almost. I'm always fascinated about how being a parent, uh, I use the word like influence, affected, influenced either your work and or sort of your outlook on your work. Or did it have any effect on you at all? Yeah, I think in the beginning, I was like this romantic idea, like, now I don't have to do anything. You know, I have him. He's like the only only thing you know that matters in a way and it was like that for a while i was like yeah maybe nothing else matters but 
And of course, there is life. There are bills. Even though there's artist salaries, you have to at least be active, you know. Yeah, I mean, for the first half a year or a year, I wasn't producing that much, at least, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it'll be more visible later on to see if how much he has affected the work. He's still so young. It's a fair point, yeah. I mean, if you have a teenager, I think it's going to be great, more effective. Yeah, and then you can look back in the last uh, 10, 15 years and see, oh, yes, I can see. <laughs> I see a dramatic shift yeah. from my pre-baby work to my post-child work. Yeah, I know. I'm looking forward to having a kid in the near future, and so I'm, I'm sort of thinking a lot about like how that will affect you know whatever okay are you expecting not uh, no but the plan is in place i see okay we're gonna cut that out <laughs> okay I'm I, see. I don't need my wife to hear that shit no i'm just kidding <laughs> she doesn't know no about no it. she's we're, we're both in on the, the plan but it's about a about a year year and a half that we'll work on it to, you know actively work on it but anyways it makes sense then yeah yeah, other life things get in the way so yeah any topics that we haven't touched on that you want to touch on no nothing specifically i mean i could i always like to talk about individual works you know but I know. <laughs> i've noticed that yeah yeah i'm trying not to talk about people's artworks <laughs> yeah i know yeah, I try not to because because we we okay. The reason for that is we all can sit here for hours on end, waxing on poetically about like, oh, I'm trying to express this and connect the human experience and all this bullshit. Wait, perfect thing to set talk about then. So I was looking through your website and I was even like doing a little Google search on you and looking all around about you. I found a good amount of images and a lot of videos. But what I didn't see a lot about you is text, statements, artist statements, bios even, very minimal amount of information about you. But you have to write a lot of artist statements for all of your applications and your grants and all these kinds of things. How do you feel about artist statements as a general whole? Okay, I'm going to blow your mind here and say, I don't really like them. <laughs> Is it the same answer everyone says? Or, uh. No, that's no surprise. Yeah, that's no surprise whatsoever. It would have been more surprising if you said you love them. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, like we just talked about, like with talking about work, you know, I love to go on and on about like all the ideas behind works and how they work and stuff like that. But if people ask me about like, what's the purpose or what's the kind of goal of your work? What, what do you, what's the message? You know, then I really kind of struggle with that. And almost consider like a kind of approach that, you know, I prefer not to have any goals with the works and let them just, you know, there's no message there. They're just things in the space in a way. Well, but that's a difficult place to be because like these days, I feel like a lot of places, exhibitions, exhibitions, curators, these kinds of people, they want a message. A lot of them want what I consider really stupid, like po politics or ecology or other sort of like cause-oriented things, which I'm not a fan of sort of cause-oriented artworks or political artworks or anything like that. Not my oeuvre. It's not my thing. But a lot of people make it and it's really lovely. So I don't want to knock them, but it's just not my thing. But I feel like that's a, a very big push of like, you need to have a reason 
in this kind of exhibition space you mean or application space and stuff like that or absolutely just in the in the scene yeah well i mean okay well okay let's take europe you're in europe so let's call it, well are you technically in europe you're not technically in europe yeah i mean it's yeah it's not in the union but it's a part of the i don't know how do you say geographically europe yeah yeah i would i would call it northern europe like very northern europe but I'm really bad with geography, so what the fuck do I know? If you want to get really specific, it's like we are in the American plate right now. You know, Iceland is like a volcanic space, so technically I'm my apartment is in the American plate. But Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so you're technically American, but yet you're funded like a European. But, well, I mean, the problem is, okay, so, like, so let's say you're invited to do these things because you were saying you were invited to do these exhibitions, you were all this kind of stuff. They're still going to expect you to write something to, even if they invite you, you still have to convince them in some way that your idea will fit with their grander scheme of whatever the exhibition or the event is. How do you approach that? Because I find it very difficult to do because I feel that like it takes me a couple of years after being done with a work to be able to look back and have the hindsight and say, oh, okay, that's what that work was about. And I need this time and distance to be able to figure it out even for myself. But when you're making works in this kind of scenario where like somebody invites you to a to do an exhibition in a museum and you need to have a statement before even starting the work about what the work's going to be about, that's really tough. Yeah, it is. And I think specifically, actually, with my work, like, I did this work. You have probably not seen it, at least not on my website. It's called Sticky Floor. It's very simple. It's just like a floor that's sticky. So you... Titles are very creative, too. That's good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. You are in the space, and then you realize you're walking somewhere on, like, a spot that's sticky. Like a meter times a meter, maybe, roughly. So... Uh, that's a piece that was like really obviously a very simple idea. It just came, you know, the unique kind of way of working. But then it took like some months to just execute it correctly to figure out how do I make like a properly sticky floor that's going to work in a museum or gallery scenario. Well, sticky enough to be sticky, but not so sticky that it tracks into the next room also. Exactly, exactly that. So you don't have to be there all the time yourself kind of making it sticky and it's going to last the whole day at least. And it's possible to clean it up, exactly. And I mean, from my experience, when I make new works, I'm often trying to show people and they have no idea what they're looking at. So I had a curator for a show. I was doing a show in Copenhagen where I showed this uh, sticky floor. And this curator was like, yeah, it's here. It's, it's this. And he's like looking at me with this kind of empty eyes. And it's like, I have no idea what you're trying to show me. What is this? You know, how does this work? And so often it's something that kind of, I have decided, yeah, this makes sense. And then they can't see it almost until it's existing. I mean, this applies also to, I don't know if you saw these very miniature oil paintings called the tears. They're like, like centimeters times half a centimeters. And they are like, they have a staple through it. So they look like something has been torn away from the wall. When I did this for the first time, I was in a studio complex and invited an artist to come look at this. I just said to him, yeah, I have something to show you. Do you want to come and take a look at the work? And he, he walked up to the wall and he tore it off the wall. And then he said, like, yeah, so what, what do you want to show me? So he kind of assumed, you know, this was just something was in the way of something else. In a way. So I often have a little bit of difficulty to explain to people beforehand, like, what it is and what it's going to look like, you know. It, to be honest, I saw those pieces in, in picture and I probably would have done the same thing. Uh, yeah, it just looked like a, a scrap 
of something that was just there that you're like, oh, oh wait, let me get this out of the way so we can look at the, the real thing. Exactly. And it's the same with, there's one called Tidal Holder, which is like a piece of plexiglass that's like leaking from its blue tack on the wall. It's something I saw in museums, like regional museums and stuff like that, where they have long exhibitions. And you just saw see the tidal kind of slowly disappearing from the wall. So I created that work. And then there is someone who, who owns that work and they have it at their home. And every time he has a dinner party, it has been like fixed. You know, someone has assumed that it should be not leaking. Well, but I, again, like it sounds like you're 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 trying to sort of react to situations of the arts world, the arts market, the arts industry, whatever. Um, and but yeah, so like, how is it working? Like, the, do, do after you explain it, do people get it, or are people still like, eh? <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing to get in a way. There's not like a big truth to be understood but there is something to be understood from experiencing it in a way so i think they they experience when they finally see it in the space installed but on a studio floor or on a studio wall it to a lot of people doesn't make any sense and that's not against them it's just something that because it only almost makes sense in that as an installed piece somehow Oh, don't kid yourself. I I had a, a, fr well, a friend, a guy I knew in, in graduate school. His art piece was he took a wall in the gallery and he sanded it down to a almost mirrored finish. That's it. That that was the piece. Like So a beautifully smooth, perfectly sanded wall. That was it. And people would walk in and they're like, a beautiful wall but so where's the piece like so they thought that was like that's the that's the preparation for then presenting something but the point was is about the white cube walls the the sterile environments i mean so that he had this whole deep sort of profound reasoning behind it kind of thing don't get me wrong i don't think it was an amazing piece but it had a poignant sort of intention behind it and i think some of like your your tile holder sliding down your title sort of title holder thing sliding down and your, the the remnants of a painting like they have something that they can be that are being said there yeah definitely and the context they're in as well because you were asking now because i kind of got sidetracked there you were asking a bit about writing stuff like that and i do use maybe not the artist statement that much but the what is it called like the press release i use often as, as a work as well Wait a minute, you write your own press releases i yeah i mean when i do something in like an artist run space or something like that yeah i have used the press release sort of as as a work as well so i wrote something for i did a show in it's called the living art museum i don't know if you're familiar with that here in Reykjavik. it's an old it has come up in numerous conversations yes okay yeah, I did a show there in 2014, 15, something like that. And then my press release was a sort of an attempt to reject the show. So I wrote, it started with a sentence, I didn't want to do this show. The board members convinced me, but then they didn't even, or it was something, it was really like defensive in a way, a kind of rejection of the show I was about to open. So it was like also, I'm creating a certain space with that, uh, with that writing. If it's a show that no one loves, I think I, I called it as well in the press release. Interesting. It can be your your general sort of like irreverence towards the artwork is, or towards the art world 
is is a very interesting sort of contrast because most people are like trying to participate and be part of and 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 engage with and you are literally like taking all the things you're learning and saying no no fuck that <laughs> let's go the other way <laughs> yeah i mean i'm kind of also interested in just experimenting what it means to exhibit what that is like our previous show in the regular garden instead of using a handout or having titles on the wall the largest piece in the exhibition was a big text on the wall just describing when you walk into the space, there's a screen on the wall. That piece is called, I think, an idea of not taking anything for granted. You know, do you understand what I mean? I do. Well, because I, I actually, uh, over here on my screen while I'm talking to you, I have your image of the piece called Info, the scraped vinyl lettering. I find that utterly fascinating because it, to me, it, it, I think there's a sense of the, of your work that is... The, I feel like it's like remnants of or the deconstructing of kind of thing. So like you're deconstructing the traditional artist statement that's written up on the wall in, in an exhibition or you're deconstructing a painting by tearing it off and just leaving a little fragment of it or you're, you know, you're deconstructing an exhibition of something's plaque, little name plaque by just leaving the name plaque, but there's actually no artwork and the name plaque has become the artwork. So there's a lot of taking the the institutional ideas and basically sort of deconstructing them down to their sort of more core and almost antagonistic angles <laughs> like because you're being complementary for sure <laughs> yeah i'm just also just thinking about like vinyl lettering is that something we just do we all just agree that that's just has to be there in every exhibition there's a the vinyl lettering that's not a work and then we enter space, this will be a work. You know, it's all these kind of ideas that we have in our mind that are, what, what is a work, what is not, what is just something. Handout is just, just something also that we just all agree on. We just all have these A4 papers that we walk around with, black and white. Okay, a little bit of a throwback then. I want to know, what what did you think of that guy in, I think, what was it, Basel, that did the banana with the duct tape? Yeah, who was that? Was it Marit? Mauricio Catalan, who did that, or no? Mauricio Catalan, yes. I don't know. For me, maybe maybe my work like that as well. I felt it was a little bit too much, too obvious. I mean, he has made some really nice works, but I don't know. I felt it was a little bit, that piece was kind of a little bit too convenient somehow, too obvious. All right. Just asking your opinion. <laughs> I don't know. What, what did you think? I think I'm not of that style. Like, the, so like, anything like that i'm not when i was i was in abu dhabi and and somebody did an installation where they like literally just put an entire room and filled it with bananas and then just let them decay for the whole week of the art fair and like that that was the exhibition i can imagine the flies the fruit flies yeah it was horrible it was and i was just sort of like i, I don't there's a certain line and don't get me wrong it's not it's not a any sort of a criticism of people who make like deeply conceptual works and all this kind of crap it's just uh it, it's not my uh background it's not my so like they could easily turn around and look at mine and be, oh you you make decorative work and pretty stuff you know like I, I totally get it so like it's a personal perspective on the thing like it's it's just not my thing but while I can see your kind of connection to that, I think my work are a bit more kind of slight. They're kind of invisible in a way. So I have like in the same exhibition as the info text, there was like something called stain. There's like a, a water paint, very thin. It's smeared on the wall really quickly with a rag. 
So it looks like something has been cleaned away. It's like a stain from something. So the works are never really aggressive, I think, at least. They're kind of, you know, they're more closer to invisible. That sometimes caused me a bit of confrontation because I think that also can be a bit like aggressive to people in a way. So, I mean, I did this work called Chews. I don't know if you saw that. It's about I'm, I'm eating a lot of, chewing a lot of biscuits. If I describe it, it's, I will make portraits of people putting biscuits, like digestive biscuits in my mouth, chewing them, about three of them until my mouth is completely full. And then I will remove it slowly from my mouth and like a piece is, is ready. So it's like a performance sculptural thing. I'm kind of just around them. I'm not really looking at them. I'm just eating the crackers. And I've done this performance a few times and I've gotten like surprisingly, compared to how like kind of weak and slight that performance is, I've gotten quite aggressive responses. Like when I did this here in Iceland, there was a news media that did a short clip about it to introduce the, the project. And people were like grabbing me in the bar, you know, hey, you are you the idiot that was chewing biscuits or yelling at me in the street and stuff like that? Or are you using our government funds to make that? Yeah, maybe in the end it all comes down to money. Maybe that's the thing. But I think in a way also that people, I mean, we went through the 60s, 70s of the animal corpses and the blood and the nudity and the, the feces and the piss and all that stuff. And... Today, I think that's what 50 years later, you know, that's what people expect performance to be, like some sort of, you will, you will see blood, there will be blood, like the Paul Thomas Anderson film. But when they see something that's like, you know, nothing that much is happening, it's just something going on. I think that's maybe triggering in some ways. This is an interesting sort of, uh, again, reaction or deconstruction of the, the expectations of being an uh, involved in art. So like when you go to see a piece of art, you expect a spectacle of some sort. You expect, you expect a wow moment or, a, you know, transcendental experience or kind of thing. And, and you say, again, you seem to like, just like turn it all on reverse and be like, no, no, no I'm just going to do this little thing right here. That's it. No spectacle at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anti-spectacle is interesting. All right. <laughs> so let's really, let, wrap this up. I have these final two questions I generally ask. So do you have three contemporary artists that you are looking at? Oh, shit. I forgot about that. Yeah, you have that question in the end. I've always asked that question. Don't ask it like Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should have prepared for that one. I like it when people don't prepare. So it's literally just off the top of your head, three people that you respect, admire, or are looking at. They can be peers, friends, or aspirational people, whatever. I mean, I can start with quite a bit older. Christian Guðmundsson, who's an, an Icelandic artist, who I think his, his work is really important. He also makes this quite slight work. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I am not. It was always a joke that his works are so small and stuff like that. He would show up to an exhibition. He would have a museum exhibition and he would show up just a few days before and the curator would say, hey, the works aren't here. You know, where are they? And then he would reach into his pocket, <laughs> the shirt pocket, to pick up all the, all the works. I don't know if that's true. He's someone I like quite a lot. And then without getting corny, I would say also my partner in the market, I think she's also a very interesting artist. And she had a fantastic show now recently here in Reykjavik. And I think her works are really unique. She made a, a work now which was called Shower Piece, where she had a shower, a functional shower, and a, a piece of clay straight from the package, like 
under the shower. So it was slowly being formed by the drips of the shower. So you could think about it being kind of almost like nature would kind of carve a stone or like even like the sculpture being cleaned slowly like every day with a stream of water. The third one, I feel like I haven't seen any work almost in a year. So I'm a bit... Okay, I'll, I'll throw in Ryan Gunter, a British artist. His work I always appreciate. He, he made that fantastic piece in Documenta in 2012. Yeah, I think he makes really great work. And the last thing that I generally ask, I'm t- changing it up a little bit. What's the best advice you ever received? Specifically about your art career, by the way. So don't give me like random advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thou shall. Yeah, no. I know. Don't don't covet thy neighbor's wife. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. One thing that I remember getting this advice when I was being really late, you know, coming close to the deadline of the exhibition. You know, this is in school probably, and then someone telling me, you know, this is it. When the exhibition opens, there's no turning back. That's it. What you have there is is kind of it. And I remember taking kind of an obnoxious teenager approach to that, like, oh yeah, maybe you know. Maybe it isn't like that. And that's kind of, I think that kind of affected my career in a way that, you know, this kind of threat about like a time limit coming up and you have to be finished. That made me kind of consider that you could maybe also exhibit something that looks like it hasn't even been finished, that it's kind of in between scenarios. So it was an accidental advice someone gave to me, I think. Interesting. All right. I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. No, it makes complete sense. Do, do you, by chance, do you also have any advice you'd like to give like the next generation from your own experiences? I like negative stories, like the failures, things that you, that you did wrong, that you're like, stay away from this bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think I liked what someone also said once it was like, it doesn't matter where you exhibit, you know, I think a little bit too often if people might get like this idea that they might even be like too good for something early on in the career, too good for like a very small artist on space. And I think at least I know of some people that have kind of made that mistake early on, you know, getting like an offer to exhibit somewhere where they thought it was like they were above it in a way. I think that's a mistake. There are certain places that you do sort of place out of like coffee shops. I think there is a point where you shouldn't show in coffee shops anymore. Sure, definitely, definitely. You can have that approach. But I mean, I remember a classmate of mine who got, who was also doing, you know, good in the end of his studies. And then he got an offer to show in like a bit of a minor space, but it was like a small museum. And he said no to it. You know, he was going to aim a bit higher. And I think that was kind of a mistake. So I think I would rather recommend just actively exhibiting and then cut down later. Well, exhibiting, exhibiting leads to exhibiting. You know, so like every opportunity that you get even if maybe that particular thing didn't garner some whatever great accolades or success or whatever, it will then be the thing that is a stepping stone to the next thing. So like, yeah, it's the same with early on. If you kind of, if you make the mistake of kind of overpricing your work, you know, that's a really difficult place to be at because then you, if you're not selling anything and then you kind of, you can't really go down. I think it's really difficult at least. It's bad to to go down. No, you should not do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Well, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, same to you, Matthew. I hope you are enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. 
Please be sure to tell your friends to subscribe as well. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. I am your host, Matthew Doles. And for more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.